Man, good to see all of you tonight. Genesis 14. Genesis 14. I would entitle this chapter, The Battle of the Kings. It is the first Middle East battle that's recorded in Scripture. And we certainly know it's not the last Middle East battle. There have been battles in that part of the world ever since the book of Genesis and continue on to this day. It is one of the most hotly contested areas, if not the most hotly contested area in the world. This chapter divides very neatly into three sections. In the first 12 verses, we're going to see the backdrop, if you will, of the story. In verses 13 uh, through 16, we're going to see the bravery that's exhibited by Abram. And then finally, the, the crux, if you will, the high point of the chapter, verses 17 through 24, the blessing. And in the midst of the backdrop, the bravery, and the blessing, we see Abram as the worshiper, Abram as the warrior, and Abram as the witness. All right? In fact, I want you to note, before we move into chapter 14, because the beginning of chapter 14 says three very important words at the beginning, at that time. What time? The time we just left in chapter 13. And that was a time where Abram had moved his tents, went to live by the oaks of Mamre in Hebron, and built an altar to the Lord there, and was in a place of worship. Again, I want us to remember that. Said that at the beginning of our worship. Abram did not know what was coming, but worship was preparing him for what was to come. Don't look at your worship of God, your acknowledgement of God, your time to stop and pause and be in God's presence as simply a there for this moment and this present time circumstance. It's also preparing your heart for what is to come. Worship is not only to be in the moment, but it is also preparation for what is to come. That's why we should always be worshiping because we don't know what's coming, but it will always prepare us and strengthen us as it did Abram. At that time, there are many kings here that are mentioned. The king of Shinar, verse 1, the king of Elisar, the king of Elam, the king of nations. And notice, they went to war or to fight against the king of Sodom, the king of Gomorrah, the king of Adma, the king of Zeboin, and the king of Bela, or Zoar. Now, these last five kings, the ones that were just listed in verse 2, joined forces in the valley of Siddim because for 12 years they had served as subjects to these other kings. They were sort of vassal states. They were subservient to these other four kings. They were more powerful, and so they ruled over these other five kings and their people. But in the 13th year, these kings and their people said, enough, we're going to revolt. And the Bible says they rebelled. So in the 14th year, the kings who were allies came and defeated these other kings that were not mentioned yet, 
but they were moving towards a confrontation with these five kings and their kingdoms and their peoples who have rebelled against them and sought to throw the yoke off, if you will. And then it says, they came down into Kadesh, verse 7, and they conquered all the territory of the Amalekites as well as the Amorites who were living there as well. Then the king of Sodom, the king of Gomorrah, the king of Adma, the king of Zeboin, and the king of Bela went out and prepared for battle together in this valley and met the other four kings. Four kings, notice at the end of verse 9, fought against five. Now the valley of Siddim was full of tar pits. And when the kings of Sodom and Gomorrah fled, they fell unto them, but some survivors fled to the hills. The four kings, who were already the ones that were more powerful than the other five, who had them in submission, they won the battle. And they took all the possessions and food of the other defeated kings, as well as, notice verse 12, they also took Abram's nephew Lot and his possessions when they left, for Lot was living in Sodom. Now, I wanted to get through those 12 verses for this reason. Yes, there's 12 verses devoted to this first sort of Middle East war that's recorded in Scripture. But it's not unlike other wars and battles down throughout history, people getting tired of being the servants and subservient to other people and finally saying enough is enough and rising up and all of that. These kind of conflicts have went on since the beginning of time and will continue to go on till the end of time. But this isn't the focus of this chapter. This is just the backdrop. I want us to be aware of that. God is using this chapter to highlight the faith of his servant, Abram. And what's that tell us? That tells us that it's not that God is obviously not concerned at all about great wars and great conflicts and nations rising up against nations. He is. But God is especially interested in pointing us to the faith of his faithful people. That's what really gets God's attention. Not the conflicts of the nations, not the things on the front page of our newspapers that many times captures the attention of the world. The things that are going on in Washington, D.C., and, and London, and Shanghai, and, and uh, Moscow, and all that. We in the world get caught up in the great cities of the world and the great nations of the world and the great conflicts of the world. And you know what God cares about? He cares about the faith of his faithful people. That's what he looks at. That's what he points out. These things are always going to go on. But God is interested in the demonstration of faith that comes from his faithful people. I'll revert our attention back to Job. Isn't that exactly what God did with Job? There's so much going on in the world. We don't even know what was all going on in the world in Job's day. But when Satan came to have a conversation with God, God says, hey, check out my servant Job. He's amazing. See, what, what interests God 
is not all the big stuff that our world and sometimes even we get caught up with. It's the demonstration of faith of his faithful servants. And I say that at the beginning to encourage you that sometimes in this big world, you as an individual may think you get lost. Like, who am I? Who notices me? Who notices me putting my faith in the Lord every day and demonstrating faithfulness? I'll tell you who. God does. God sees you. And God is very pleased when he looks down from glory and, and heaven uh, on his throne and he sees people who are demonstrating faith in him. That's what captivates God. That's what captures his attention. That's what brings pleasure to him is seeing faith demonstrated by his people. So this war is simply a backdrop. It is all there to simply get us to that last verse. That's the real key. That in the midst of this war, Abram's nephew Lot was basically taken as a prisoner of war. Now, I also want to point this out. Notice the progression of Lot. If you go back up to chapter 13, verse 12 at the end, you'll notice that when Lot chose that land that we talked about last week, it said it, he pitched his tents next to Sodom. But now when you come down to verse 12 of chapter 14, where's Lot? He's not next to Sodom. Now he's what? He's living in Sodom. Did you see that? He didn't stay outside. Now he's moved in. And he's gotten caught up in a conflict and was taken captive. What God is saying is Lot's bad choice is finally catching up with him because he got in league with some bad people and he got caught up in a conflict that necessarily he wasn't a part of, but because of where he placed himself, He's now a captive. See, there's a lesson here for us. Spiritually, if we're not careful, we can get ourselves in places where we can become spiritual captives, where something can get a hold of us and be detrimental to us spiritually. Just as Lot got himself in a bad place with some bad people and got caught up in something and now is suffering because of it and now is literally, physically, a captive. God came to set people free. He doesn't want to see his people held captive by anyone or anything. And here's Lot. Because of what he chose, he is now a captive. He is now a prisoner. But now, notice something else. God's plan for his people does intersect with the nations. You and I still live in this world. And, and though we need to be a distinct people, we still have to learn how to navigate within this world. And there's going to be times where we intersect. And that's why God says, I need my people to have wisdom to know who to make alliances with, 
who to partner with and who not to. Because there are, are times where God says, I want you to partner with that person or them. And there's other times that you'll get in trouble if you partner with them. And that was Lot. He got in league with the wrong people and got caught up in a conflict and became a captive. But now we come to verse 13. And this is where it's all been building up to this point. Again, the battle is just the backdrop. That may have been what was on the front page of the newspapers, if you will, but that's not what God's concerned about. And I want us to see Abram maybe from a different perspective than you've ever seen Abram before. I don't know, when you, when you think of Abram or Abraham, what you picture him as, how do you think he looks, and you know what kind of person he was, but here's a part of Abram that many people don't realize. Abram was nobody to mess with. Abram was a strong man. Abram was a warrior. Abram was a general. Abram was a leader of men. Abram was no one to mess around with. And so notice, verse 13, the bravery after the backdrop. A fugitive came and told Abram, the Hebrew. By the way, that's significant. First time the word Hebrew is ever used in the Bible. And it's used to distinguish Abram, who's in the promised land. But see, at this point, he's still a stranger. This still isn't his, if you will. Now, Abram was living by the oaks of Mamre, that place of worship, the Amorite, the brother of Eshcol and Aner. All these, notice, these were allied by treaty with Abram. So Abram had made a partnership had cut a covenant, had made a treaty, a treaty establishing a formal alliance with these other people. He realized there are times where I need to seek to live peaceably with those around me, even though they might not be God worshipers as I am. I've got to learn to try to get along with them as much as possible, because later on, he's going to be a great witness. And how can we witness to those that don't know God if we're not around them at all or have any contact with them? We cannot isolate ourselves from the world. So verse 14, notice, Abram the warrior. When Abram heard that his nephew had been taken captive, he immediately mobilized his 318 trained men who had been born in his household, and he pursued the invaders as far as Dan. Let's back up. So much to get to right there. First of all, let's talk about Abram's attitude. Abram could have said what maybe some of us would have said. I'm not going down there and help my nephew. He made a bad choice. He got himself in this mess. I'm not going to risk my life and the life of these good people to go down there and rescue him. Let him suffer. That wasn't Abram's attitude at all. And I'm so glad that's not God's attitude either. How many times could God say to us, oh, they've gotten themselves in another mess. I'm done. I'm done pouring out my grace. I'm done trying to help. I'm done giving him a second chance. I'm done going down and rescuing him. I, no, God never. And Abram is exhibiting 
some of the qualities of the Lord here. By even though maybe Lot didn't deserve his help, Abram immediately, without question, said, I'm going to rescue my nephew. The second thing we notice here, he has an army. Abram, he is the leader of basically a highly trained elite force of men. Notice, that's what it says, trained men. So in other words, let's even back up further. Abram took the time to train men for battle. It's not that he was always looking for a fight, but Abram knew he needed to be ready to fight if need be. There would be times that he would need to defend himself and his family and, and, and what he possessed, and there would be times where there are such things as good fights. And so Abram prepared for that. That's a good lesson for us. We should never as Christians go out looking for fights, but we should always be prepared for spiritual warfare especially and for the, the wars and the battles and the fights that God wants us to enter into and leads us to. There are such things as good fights. Paul says to Timothy, fight the good fight. And we need to prepare for that. You and I can't be ready for that kind of warfare just by flipping a switch on. And that's why I go back again to where was Abram before this all went down? He was by the oaks of Mamre worshiping the Lord. He was preparing his heart, his mind, his spirit, his soul, everything within him, and he didn't know what was coming. He didn't know that that battle was getting ready to take place. He didn't know his nephew was going to be taking a prisoner of war. He didn't know he was going to have to mobilize his men and go out and fight, but he was ready for it when it came. And that's what God wants to see in his people. He wants to see a readiness within us that we are ready for whatever comes and that we have through him and his guidance and leadership in our life prepared ourselves for the day in which we live and for the challenges that lie ahead. That's Abram. I love this word mobilized because it literally means in the Hebrew poured out. Abram poured out the resources that he had to rescue his nephew Lot. And I say that because you and I may not have 318 trained uh, men who uh, are an elite fighting force at our disposal, but God has given us other resources and other spiritual things and physical things and whatever that is at our disposal that are always there to, to be used to the glory of God and for the things that God leads us to. And we need to be ready and prepared uh, to use those things and be trained in them. I even think about David. They tried to stick Saul's armor on David, and David said it doesn't fit. It, it doesn't feel comfortable. It's not me. I need to go back to what is tried and true. And for that young shepherd boy, David, what was tried and true was a sling and some stones. So that's where God, God doesn't ask us not to be who we are. God simply says, give me what you have and what I've already given you and use it and, and be, be tried in it, be tested in it. Train yourself, the Bible says, for these things. And then we'll become more proficient in them. So he chased him down. Verse 15, then during the night, Abram divided his forces. He was a military genius. He did things way ahead of his time. You know, even in the Civil War era, it was like 
You mean generals were splitting up their armies and trying to, yeah. But that was like, that was radical. Because up until that point, it was just like straight lines and just plowing each other over. No, he was, even back then, he was like, no, we're, we're going we're gonna to flank. He divides his forces against them and defeated them. Literally in the Hebrew, he struck a fatal blow and chased them as far as Hobah, which is north of Damascus, and he overthrew the enemy. Not only did he defeat them, then notice verse 16, he retrieved, he returned, he restored all the stolen property, also brought back his nephew Lot and his possessions, as well as the women and the rest of the people. Abram was a hero. But he was a warrior. He was willing to fight for his nephew, their possessions, and the others. And he had the resources to do it. He was prepared for it. And so, again, I don't know what your image of Abram is, but man, he was nobody to mess with. He was strong. He was capable. He was a military leader. And he was a leader of other people. And he was willing to fight for what he believed in. That's Abram, you see. But again, even that part of the story is not the main thrust. God leaves the main thrust of this passage in this chapter to the very end. And here's what I want to say before we get into it in verse 17. This great battle that took place at the beginning of the chapter could have been, for most people, the focus, right? But the focus from God's perspective is that there's a spiritual battle that's going to take place within Abram that's even more important than this other battle that took place in the physical world. And I say that because sometimes that's true in our life. It's not the external big things that we see that maybe are most important. Sometimes the biggest battles that are waging are the ones that are waging within us, in our hearts and in our minds. And and to win, it starts there. And the other thing I want to point out is And Nicole and I were just talking about this again this week. You and I, even as Christians, are most vulnerable after great times of victory. We have to be careful of that. Abram was probably a little vulnerable here because he had just achieved a great victory. Sometimes that's when we need to even be more alert is after the spiritual highs, you see. So verse 17, the blessing. Abram returned from defeating all these kings, and the king of Sodom went out to meet Abram in the valley, known as the king's valley, but also another king came out to meet Abram. You're going to see the king of Sodom come out later, But now this other king, Melchizedek, the king of Salem, literally the king of righteousness and peace, comes out to meet Abram. And very interestingly, he brought out bread 
and wine. When you think of bread and wine, what automatically comes to your mind? The Lord's table. Isn't it interesting? I don't think it's an accident or coincidence that this priest of God, this king and priest of God, who was king and priest of a city, Jerusalem, came out and brought Abram after his victory, bread and wine. And it says, he was the priest of the Most High God. By the way, this is the first mention of the term priest in the Bible. It's here in Genesis 14. Supreme God, Most High, no one higher than God. And he blessed Abram. He saluted Abram. He congratulated Abram. He basically said, Abram, as a representative of God, well done. You did good. God is proud of you. Blessed be Abram by the most high God. He was led by God to go out and bless Abram. Creator of heaven and earth. Now, there's much speculation, especially with what the New Testament says about this guy Melchizedek. The writer of Hebrews says that he's, in a sense, a type of Christ because he has no beginning and no end, no ancestry. Some people even think that Melchizedek was an appearance of Jesus pre-Bethlehem. I personally don't believe that. I believe he was just a literal man who was the priest and king of Jerusalem in the time of Abram. But it is interesting that God sent him to Abram after this victory to bless Abraham, to basically say, well done, good and faithful servant. You did good. But then, after blessing Abram, then Melchizedek offers praise to God. He says, worthy of praise is the Most High God. Worthy of songs of adoration is what the word praise means. We've sung songs of adoration and always do here at the Oasis. And God is always worthy of our songs of adoration and praise. And he is the one who delivered your enemies into your hand. Reminding even Abram, you did not win this victory by your own hand and by your own might and by your own wit and wisdom, though you did what you could do and you had trained men and you took your responsibility. Ultimately, the victory over all these kings, because you were outnumbered greatly, was because God delivered them into your hand. By the way, very interestingly, the word delivered in the Hebrew means to be surrounded or shielded. Before God actually placed the enemies in the hands of Abram, if you will, he first of all surrounded and shielded Abram from being harmed or hurt by the enemies and then delivered them. That's the way God always gives victory. First, he will surround us and shield us. He is our shield first, and then he will place things in our hands as we gain victory over them. Then it says, Abram gave Melchizedek a tenth or tithe of everything that Abram had. So, first of all, there's this blessing by the king of Salem, right? 
Everything's good. But then there's always another king, right? There's always another way. Just like Psalm 1, two ways. Someone coming at me from this direction, but now I've got somebody coming at me from this direction. And here comes, in a sense, the test, the temptation. And where is Abram going to fall out here? So the king of Sodom said to Abram, and, and, and I'll say this, I believe with all my heart that the reason why Abram did the things he did and said the things he did to the king of Sodom was because he had prepared himself for this through worship. The king of Sodom said to Abram, give me the people and take all these possessions for yourself. But Abram replied, and here now we go from Abram the worshiper and Abram the warrior to Abram the witness. Abram is going to give a strong witness for God and to God here in front of all of these kings. Abram replied to the king of Sodom, I raise my hand to the Lord, capital L-O-R-D, Jehovah, the Most High God, creator of heaven and earth, the originator and owner of everything there is in the universe. Because it originated with him, he also owns it. That's important. And I vow that I will take nothing belonging to you, not even a thread or the strap of a sandal. Notice the absoluteness of Abram's posture here. He, he, he doesn't waver. He doesn't say, well, that, all the possessions? Well, let me think about it. No, no. I'm not taking a thing, not even a strap of a sandal. That way. And here is the reason for this whole chapter. <laughs> Why is this chapter in the Bible? For this very verse. That way, you, the king of Sodom, can never say, it is I who made Abram rich. I will take nothing except compensation for what the young men have eaten. As for the share of the men who went with me, let them take their share, but I'm taking nothing. What's this chapter then all about? What? What have we been pointing to this whole time, starting with the battle of the kings back in verse 1? It is this. The point of this entire chapter in this passage is to show that Abram chooses God to be his reward and chooses God to be his rewarder. See, God needs to be our reward. The king of Sodom is an illustration of the world and what the world offers us as the people of God. And yet, God made a promise to Abram. He said, I will bless you. I, I will bless you so you can bless others. I will make you have descendants that are greater than the, the sands on the seashore. I will be your reward and everything that you need and you will ever want and that will fulfill and satisfy you, it will come through my hand. Do you trust me? And here, Abram's faith is standing strong. 
He's saying, yep, Lord, I trust you. I'm not going to take anything from the world because what the world offers me is nothing compared to what you will give me. I'm just going to hold out and wait for you to give it to me. Oh, what a lesson for us. First of all, to remember that maybe one of the greatest acts of worship that we can have and the greatest acknowledgments of God in our worship is to say, God, you're my reward. You're my reward. I truly don't need anything else but you, and I have you. I'm good. But beyond that, it is to have the faith to go, God, you are the originator and owner of everything in the universe. If you want me to have something, you'll give it to me. Because you promised me that you'll take care of me. Therefore, I'm going to wait and let my rewards come from you, not from this king of Sodom. In some ways, this sort of parallels the temptation of Jesus. When Satan took Jesus up and showed him all the kingdoms of the world and said, I'll give you those if you just bow down and worship me. As if the world, all of it, could somehow tempt Jesus, who was going to one day inherit the world in God's time. But first came a cross and suffering and rejection and pain and all of that. That took trust in his father to say, I know it's coming, so I'm going to wait. And even the book of Hebrews picks up on that, the, the perspective that Jesus had, because it says, who for the joy that was set out for him, he endured the cross. And God wants his people to have that kind of mindset and that kind of heart. And where does that come? It comes from us living a lifestyle of worship. Because when you and I live a lifestyle of worship and we truly are settled that God is our reward, then we also will be set in saying, God, and you are also my rewarder. You are the originator and owner of everything in this universe, and you are very capable of placing into my hands just as you place the enemies of mine into my hands. You can place good things into my hands too, and you can place blessings into my hands. And so therefore, God, I will wait for you to give it to me. And that's exactly what Abram did. He was a strong witness to these pagans that he trusted God and would not take any, because he didn't want them later on to go, well, the reason why Abram's living such a great life is because of us. We did it. No, Abraham says, all the glory needs to go to God. And the only way God gets the glory for it is when we wait for God to give it to us. I want you to think about something, too, throughout maybe the rest of the night and week. Isn't it more special when we know that what we have and what we possess came from the hand of God? I mean, when you know that the reason you have what you have, whether it's a dear friend that God brought into your life or some kind of material possession, I even think about this church. Dave talks about this all the time. The other elders, we talk about it when we get together. This piece of ground 
was given to us by the hand of God. This was a gift from God to us. And that's what makes this place special. Because we all, we were, we were hunting for land and, you know, stuff all over the place. And in God's timing, God said, just trust me to give it to you. And he opened up the door. And that's what makes it so special when you know God's hand gave it to us. And that's where Abraham is. He's like, I'm going to trust God to give it to me. Because when he gives it to me, and I know it came from him, it's always worth it. So in this chapter on the battle of the kings, the real battle might have been, what was Abraham going to do when he was confronted with the king of Sodom and that temptation or that test? Take all the possessions of the war. Take the spoils. And Abram said, no, I'm going to wait on my God because God is my reward. So again, we see from, in a sense, the end of chapter 13 all the way through chapter 14 to the very end. It's really about our worship, our hearts towards God. Is God the reward of our life? And will we trust him to be the rewarder of our life? Let's pray. God, we thank you tonight. that Abram had the faith to be a witness to others, Lord, of how he trusted in you, how he loved you and believed in you. And God, you give us those opportunities in our life as well. We can go after things in our own way, and we can scheme and, and work and finagle and all of that, and, and we can either get it from others or we can try to, force it ourselves, or we can just trust that in your timing, if you really want us to have something or someone, God, you'll bring it or bring them into our lives. And when you do, and we know that they or it came from you, God, it makes it even more special. Because we know, God, that it was a gift or that they were a gift from you. God, thank you so much for this important chapter and this, this encouragement and this challenge to all of us, God, to stand up and be like Abram. But God, in order to be like Abram, we need to be worshipers. And so God, help us to continue to live a lifestyle of worship every day so that we can be prepared for the challenges and the tests and the trials that will come our way. These things we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. God bless. We'll see you next week.